Hello and welcome to another edition of Novara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's brightest radio station and the best thing south of the river since Morley's Fried Chicken. I'm your host, Ash Sarka at IOC, is it if you're about that life? And as always, you can tweet along to the show using the hashtag Navara FM. And do we have an absolute peach of a show for you today? I'm joined by Liv Winter, Jay Owens, and you heard Van Selfter as we muse on shadow channels. Very evocative, very poetic. Shadow channels, art, politics, propaganda, and a whole lot more besides. Liv Winter is an artist, poet, and activist with Sisters Uncut and has been integral in organising with Where Is Anna Mendieta, a campaign and, I guess, a piece of performance art in its own right that we'll be talking about in some detail over the course of the show. Jay Owens is a writer and researcher and self-identifying recovering geographer whose work on networks examines the social impacts of new technologies. Um, I cannot wait to be educated by you. I'm really into hierarchical learning um, <laughs> when there's someone as a erudite and a highly qualified as yourself. And last but not least, I'd like to welcome Yuha, a longtime friend of the show, host of Progress Bar and course convener of Shadow Channel, an upcoming fine arts masters at the Sandberg Institute in Film Design and Propaganda, where you might be able to catch some familiar Navarra media faces teaching. So thanks for coming. <laughs> Thank you, Ash. Thank you, Ash. So much excitement. Such a privilege. Um, you know, I've got this incredible sense of deja vu at the moment. Like somehow we've been in this moment before. Um, it feels very comforting. So I guess today we are continuing, in Adrian Rich's words, the long, erotic, unended wrestling of art and politics, which presents us with a problem. It's very sexy, but there's no beginning and there's no end. Where do we start? How do we start to uh, break into this discourse? And I think, you know, dealing with this um, image of no beginning and no end, it lends us quite well to a quote from Jean-Luc Nancy. There is no meaning than the meaning of circulation. There is no other meaning than the meaning of circulation. And I think this takes us beyond the medium is the message, you know, kind of beyond the kind of uh, postmodernist thinking that Juliet Jakes referenced a couple of weeks ago and into something a bit more critical, a bit more radical, a bit more uh, material, really. We're thinking about flows, not just of ideas, flows, not just of forms, but capital, people, politics and thinking about how is it that platforms come to be constructed, what ideologies are um, embodied or indeed ossified within them. So I want to hear from our guests as much as you do, so I'm going to shut up, which is always a relief. And Yuha, why don't you kick off with telling us about what is Shadow Channel? Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Ash. Shadow Channel is a uh, one-off, two-years master's program at the Sandberg Institute in Amsterdam. And um, it deals with film design and propaganda. And it came about as a result of Generation Z's uh, ambition to just only use video uh, in their artworks today. Um, the design department in, uh, at the Sandberg in Amsterdam has been uh, flooded by students um, from, any pro from any profession or any discipline who just want to use video, whether it's um, um, 
kind of cinematic uh, moving image or installational pieces or using game engines to create music videos, any kind of uh, exotic, uh, weird, amazing form of moving images uh, or goes. So um, with that experience in Amsterdam at the design department, uh, seeing everybody con communicating in, in, in video and all of us around us using FaceTime, Snapchat, Instagram, video, stories, um, boiler room, Twitch, imagine uh, via Oculus Rift, anything um, moving in, in kind of a high-tech, high delightful aesthetic uh, on all the platforms and interfaces that we carry around us. Plus, seeing from a professional or kind of traditional art professional perspective at Lighthouse, where I was until yesterday, or um, what day is this? This month. Um, having produced and commissioned uh, a work called The Sprawl by Dutch filmmakers and designers and thinkers and radicals, uh, Metahaven, where we talked about propaganda as propaganda, uh, about propaganda, and art as propaganda, propaganda as art, uh, fake news, post-truth, alternative facts, already in 2014-15, before uh, our dear friends uh, across the water, Steve Bannon and um, what's her name, <laughs> <laughs> Miss Alternative Fact. Um, Kellyanne. Yeah, Kellyanne Conway. Conway, indeed. Yeah. Um, so those three things, seeing, uh, seeing the students, see, uh, knowing the world around us and having the art world experience of, of making a wor work of fiction uh, in the reality of, of fake news, made us think, why not just create a master's program around this subject and look at what is the agency and what's the responsibility and what is the, the, the possibility space of art and artists and um, and education. I mean, so thinking about what you were saying about video and that this is also a response to the kind of um, saturation of our everyday lives with um, video content, right? We are producers as well as consumers, right? Because of the um, democratization, if you will, of this form is that, and you know, I'm opening up this question to um, in particular Jay, but also Liv is how do you start to um, break open this topic without reproducing hierarchies that are in some ways dying out, right? So, you know, you've got um, an intensely hierarchical pedagogical form of, you know, higher education institutions. Um, and yet what you're talking about is that anyone can be a director if they want to be. Like, isn't there yeah. a, a, t a tension or contradiction even there? I mean, maybe quite the opposite that I think it's a generation that have been making video anyway. I mean, you know, we are making video on Snapchat, we're making video on you know, sharing it all of the time in any way. And the hierarchy is actually they're getting the imprimatur of the university in order to mark them as, yes, better kinds of, hopefully become better video makers, more critical ones, more intelligent ones. But it's not necessarily that they have to go to the university to get the privilege to make that. It seems like it's much more of a formalization of things that the generation are already doing. And it is, it's about updating the university as the thing trying to catch up rather than so much the student. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I think that um, as an artist um, who's really interested in contemporary culture and I was really interested in Vine and um, these kinds of online digital platforms and I was really interested in how... Uh, Apps such as Vine were making language particularly transform much quicker. Slang was becoming in and out like a hundred times 
quicker than it ever had done before. And so it was getting harder and harder for institutions to capitalise off that. Um, but I do think the university understands, like as an institution, understands that it has to be capitalising off of what contemporary culture is and selling it back to contemporary makers and saying like you're already doing it but it's better if you do it through us and I think that happens quite a lot. I mean I guess what I'm thinking here is I'm reproducing a binary between uh, cultural uh, producers and cultural commentators do you know what I mean and I I, and I think that actually um, I'm in a very privileged position and kind of um, seeing how Shadow Channel is being put together I'm really excited about being able to teach on this course like I know that uh, a lot of work is being done to kind of uh, dismantle uh, that particular um, division of labour, right, and to kind of start blurring the edges of it. Um, but I want to pick up on what you were talking about in terms of uh, Vine and the kind of um, subcultures and communities that um, Snapchat and Vine in particular created. Um, there's an excellent essay called Poor Meme, Rich Meme. I'm not sure if um, any of you have read it. Um, so a friend of mine sent it to me and was kind of looking at the kind of connections between uh, meme culture and that particular way of like disseminating information and blackness, right? And blackness um, in the diaspora and um, kind of taking the, uh, you know, what is a meme, right? And in this article, it says beyond the obvious, meme has taken on a more difficult and speculative connotation, that of hashtag relatability, an ability to provoke a feeling of identification in the viewer is conceptually linked to the French meme. I can feel James Butler rolling his eyes somewhere <laughs> as I try and say a French word, which can be used to mean same. Recent meme history keeps the concept alive through the ongoing presence of such formats and language tropes such as it me or that feeling when. Relatability helps memes sustain a kind of cohesion and collective being, a collective memory that can never be fully encompassed. And thinking about that, right, the kind of dissemination of memes does create um, intense forms of uh, community, excitement, energy, um, particularly when you kind of think of the way in which social media is the parasite feeding off our um, affective and intellectual labor, right? And it's kind of you know, generating value out of that. Memes can be like this real source of warmth and yet they can die as quickly as they come into being, right? And we, I, I want to think about this in terms of race in particular, right? Well, there's a video of like things white people killed in 2016, like it's lit, like the nay nay, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> RIP swag. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and so thinking about like, you know, there's a generation of a, a new form of community, but it's also intensely precarious. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, what do you guys make of that? The kind of norms governing uh, relatability and indeed relevance. Huge numbers of memes and different sort of genres of meme out there, but I think taking the sort of the relatability set as as the main sort for this discussion, rather than the sort of the Trump Pepe the Frog kind of meme space, which is um, maybe a little bit different and. Um, equally interesting, if not more concerning. Um, with the circulation of these sorts of memes, there's certainly, it's really look interesting to look at that at platform relationships. And I think they really expose the way that me- social media operates as an ecosystem at this point in time. So stars built on Vine. I mean, Twitter has now sort of closed Vine. Um, and you see, or you see stars, people are then trying to push their audiences through into other channels, through into Instagram and YouTube. Um, and, you know, people moving away from Snapchat into Instagram. And a lot of it, it's not necessarily, there's a lot of exploitation. There's also 
quite interesting quantities of agency and people seeking how to position themselves effectively to how to how to leverage the different incentives that they're offered by particular channels that um, successful meme creators are making money out of doing this for, through, through advertising um, and a lot of the platform shifts are actually under indirectly related to monetization people say where can I get the most advertising from often the answer there is YouTube um, and as you know the Vine community you know has now died it has stopped being supported by Twitter but audience it's interesting to see how people's audiences are sort of semi-fungible. They're something they can take through to other channels. Takes a lot of self-promotion, takes a lot of hustle. But you see very sophisticated media strategies of, of top top meme creators and top influencers in terms of driving their audiences to the right channel, using one social media channel as a teaser for longer form content on other channels. Um, you know, and recognising where they get paid and sort of orienting themselves towards that. So Tactically, you know, they ha- they are f- operating effectively on those forms. And what that means is that if they're able to achieve a certain audience and achieve a certain reputation beyond just the one, the circulation of the one platform, that, you know, I mean, yes, they power relationships within sort of media ecosystems as a whole, but they retain enough sort of mobility and enough ability to command an audience that hopefully they've got some ability to ride out, um, you know, shifts in the wider sort of, media ecosystem that they operate within yeah i think memes are really interesting for me because i think that they i don't know what well, i'm 20 24 and i think that memes are interesting to me because they appeared at a time when uh my kind of generation and my friendship group and that we were all being told by older generations particularly that we weren't funny because of our interest in politics and the kind of the um relationship between humor and being like politically active from like an older generation we're always told that we're, we're like we've got no sense of humor because we don't laugh at racist jokes we don't laugh at sexist jokes we're happy to be a, be a killjoy in a space so kind of meme sharing online became this really interesting way to to demonstrate that we were really funny and we were really intelligent and we had a really good community-based sense of humour that wasn't accessible to to outside um, outside perspectives and outside communities. Um, and, like, you know, so many people speak now about how they became ra- radicalised through Tumblr because it's such a radical mm-hmm. platform for young people to express their anger and find good places of reference and good um, imagery and language to deal with it and discuss it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say um, Tumblr in particular because I find Tumblr just so sincere sometimes. Like, really incredibly moist. <laughs> That's a good term mm. for Tumblr. Moist is the one. <laughs> it is so very moist. It's, I mean, I just don't know how it's possible to sustain so many emotions at any one given time. I mean, <laughs> I think uh, maybe I'm revealing more of myself uh, than I am anything to do with uh, Tumblr or that particular form. But... um. It's interesting because I was chatting to um, Alana Lenton um, for an interview that you can find on NavarraMedia.com. But one of the things that we were talking about um, is the um, the danger... Oh, no. Uh, what does it mean that identity has become like the hegemonic form of political discourse? Which is not to say we don't do identity politics because that's just a... a not so subtle code for saying, um, you know, bun talking about race, bun talking about gender, bun talking about, um, you know, marginalised classes of experience. But the fact that, you know, um, we kind of uh, replicate, say, the categories of state-sponsored multiculturalism without then thinking about why that is, to what extent do do these um, identity-based models of 
uh, popular culture, right? So we're thinking about like the very particular forms of like Tumblr identity or Tumblr identitarianism. Um, I don't think these are bad things, by the way, but to, to what extent do they kind of uh, reproduce um, divisions between people, right? In terms of being like hermetically sealed within a kind of um, uh, linguistic bubble. How, how do we begin to break out of that? Well, it feels a bit like the entire history of art is a collection of memes and uh, people copying each other and, and building genres and um, until kind of a tipping point or a threshold is passed and then people move out. And um, someone once said that once a genre has its name, it's dead. And uh, probably multiple people said that because everybody mm -hmm. keeps repeating it because it became a meme. <laughs> and... and um, so the meme as the message um, might be really powerful until it reaches a certain plateau or becomes a platform, and then it can open up to others, and then it can create communality or, or openness and democracy, and then it starts kind of adopting uh, logics and, and praxis and, and strategies and tactics of, of previous communities and previous movements. And then, then it just evolves or it, it, mm. um, it metabolizes previous histories and become something more. So I, I kind of like the idea of something hidden in its own bubble until at, at least if it if it continues to um, circulate and hence grow or at least uh, um, build momentum. And um, and then it can become that potential of it becoming something bigger than itself and more open and more democratic is um, possibly why uh, um, we're building this platform with the masters, so it's not an hierarchy, it's more like a platform within the network where people can just maybe rest and uh, find each other and um, also retreat and recharge and then continue off into their own directions. So, for instance, with you coming into our platform, it's like you're you're moving away or throughout space anyway, so you'll land for a, for a moment in our space in Amsterdam and you'll debrief and people um, will adopt and or they will um, contradict or fight you and then uh, something else happens. So it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of friction and a lot of development, a lot of movement. I mean, it's interesting that you frame it as um, a space of comfort and solace. Solace is not a word we use on the left very much. And um, really what this has me thinking of is the kind of emotional affect that underpins a lot of the organizing that I've seen in Sisters Uncut. Um, I find Sisters Uncut utterly extraordinary when I look at the way in which, um, you know, the most uh, exciting, intersectional, radical, confrontational social critique um, goes hand in hand with a very uh, tender model for social interaction, interpersonally, do you know what I mean? Um, and thinking about um, how do we create spaces that are loving, both IRL and online, right? Like, again, I'm just talking about how moist Tumblr is. <laughs> now you're like, now you want to me online. And I'm just like, Anthony Joshua, if you're out there, I just need to be held. Um, but I kind of, you know, want to want to address this to you, Liv, because this mm. is the kind of organising that, you know, you're a part of. Yeah, is yeah. that how do you one create um a community space which kind of has its own linguistic rules because you you use that as a you know um a little bit of a buffer from the things that want to hurt you in the world 
how does that turn into, as you were saying, a space to recharge, to reset, to kind of like recover some strength and then make quite a spiky intervention mm. into, um, you know, the dominant politics of violence and exploitation? Mm. Like, can you tell me a bit? Yeah, about I guess the thing that? about like doing a spiky action that I always like when I when I get asked about this kind of thing, I always say that. The only people who can kind of do a direct action or a spiky action are the people who feel empowered enough to think that their body and their time and their space is validated in doing that action. So that means that when you're having an organising meeting, your meeting needs to make everyone in that room feel like they're part of the, that you're all in it together, that you're a family, that you genuinely love and care for each other and that you would have each other's back in any kind of situation. And Sisters doesn't have a flawless model for it. We're just, we've, we've been lucky enough to have people around us from other activist groups that have given us the time of day to teach us hand signals and help us write write policies of how to deal with things and we're very invested in accountability but the thing about sisters that always fills my heart is that whenever we make a mistake and we've made loads of mistakes and whenever we do we work really 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 hard to make sure that they don't happen again we really work hard to thank anyone who's generous enough to tell us why we upset them because that's such a generous act to turn around to someone and say look this is why I feel excluded or upset from this and then it's our job to work on that I think that in any activist community or anything like that there's a hierarchy there's a, we're always we're always in danger of replicating hierarchies that exist outside and that we found a lot of sisters times that working class sisters do the most work or BME sisters do the most work and trying to combat that is really difficult and takes a lot of love and a lot of sharing and a lot of sitting in front of someone who is your sister, your comrade and saying, you've upset me, you've hurt me, we need to work through it together. That seems to be a real strength of face-to-face organising that I think is what is the one strength that's really missing from, from digital organisation where sometimes the logic of circularisation, circula- circu- not circularisation, the logic of circulation uh, means that the most polarising view does tend to rise to the surface, that it is the soundbite that is most tweetable, that it's the witty riposte on Tumblr that goes and gets a thousand reblogs. And certainly the media formats we use do encourage this sort of polarisation of discourse and it takes a lot of active work um, and a lot of sort of conscious resisting of that by experienced social media users to say I'm not actually going to give in to these affordances and I'm going to try and communicate more honestly and you know, more openly mm-hmm. than that um, but by and large I don't think it's something that succeeds and, for- and affordances of the medium definitely encourage yeah. you know, the, the cheaper, the dirtier sort of uh, more aggressive responses. I mean, kind of drawing on this thought about the logic of circulation, um, do you think that the speed at which we um, compose and disseminate our thoughts kind of leads to a forgetting, Yes. (laughs) You know, there's a kind of ghostliness to the form, right? There's a ghostliness to the digital form, which, you know, maybe is mirrored in the fact that, like, our politics are not in the ascendant at the moment right let's be real we're not winning um do you think that's because like we are very committed to um ephemeral intangible forgettable forms right 
I think one of the things to draw together in circulation and, and speed is that the two are intimately connected in digital media, that if we look at how something goes viral, um, typically it hits its sort of peak rate of circulation within an hour, you know, sometimes within 10 or 20 minutes of having been posted, it just sort of explodes, it hits, you know, 10,000, 20,000 shares a minute, and, you know, within an hour, 90% of the activity has happened and it's bursted away. This creates a lot of the, the addictiveness of, of being on social media, that you feel you have to be on there, for, certainly for Twitter, you have to be on there right now to find out what's going on because five hours later the story will have developed but it encourages you know when you're trying to decide whether to retweet something it, you know what, what kind of sensible decision can you make about a topic or an argument in you know five seconds that you see something scrolling by your feed or in, in the sort of the 10 minute burst of virality that's sort of occurring it encourages that the hasty and the emotional brain and we respond to these sorts of these potent cues the kind of you know the chocolates the salt the crisps the fatty kind of content rather than eating our vegetables and you know reading the long nuanced argument and, and writing a, a 500 word blog post post in return um, and so that relationship of speed and, and circulation goes very much hand in hand which then then because you know we have very very fast moving very very fast moving conversations and also uh, no um, no mechanisms for the ordinary user to to access the archive or to access old posts and it's been interesting to see how some of the new features and things like Twitter you know the ability to quote old tweets for example you know people are actually starting to link together their ideas a little bit more and draw back on things as I said last year and, and so on and so forth but for the ordinary person it is sort of a formula of very much continual present um, and in terms of platforms better sorts of organizing better sorts of connection media that you know platforms that allow us to see how news stories have developed over time and across media and in response to social media as opposed to news media um, these kind of you know visualizations almost these w ways of, of visualizing and understanding how things are connected and how narratives change um, you know would help us perhaps have a slightly more civil politics I think maybe just to uh, add some seasoning to that is that I think politically and um, hence in media and on the social networks that we use, dread is so much more powerful than hope or love. And um, being negative is so much more impactful than being positive. And it's so much easier to uh, destroy something than construct something. And um, I think that has some bearing on, on what we're thinking about. So I don't think it's uh, that we're um, abstract and, 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 and all fluffy. And uh, I, I think it's just much easier to be negative and not uh, uh, paint a solution to that, like Wilders or like um, uh, the Leave campaign or uh, like Wilders. And... and uh, it's really hard to be constructive, hopeful, joyful, have um, that wonderful word that you just used, solace, or, or um, create solace for other people and, uh, and have empathy. And, and I think that's why memes are so powerful, because they are kind of non-linguistic uh, or non-verbal often. They present emotion in a, in a, me in a medium of... Uh, 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 without emotions, it's often just words, and people interpret words in their own way, and that's why we get all these Twitter beefs and 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 shit going on. But once emotions kick in through uh, images or through animated gifs or or through the videos that we share, all of a sudden we have more more kind of more, more layering or more distance or more maybe more proximity to it and less abstraction. Well, words are really abstract. Images and, and emotions are quite direct. So hence, coming from an art perspective, 
I deal more in emotions and in, in, in visual experiences than in, in words. I leave that often to people like Nina Power or you. <laughs> or you. And so my role uh, uh, as kind of the platform builder with, with Shadow Channel, but also with Progress Bar, is to allow emotions to be experienced. Not so much allow, I just kind of, I like something and I'll just bring in a lot of people and say, you might like this as well and experience it. And other people kind of, sorry, other people will bring in their linguistic apparatus and think, this is really important because of this and that happens there. And then kind of um, discourse or, uh, develops around it and through it. But I think the emotional, the affective um, energy and, and uh, kind of force field it's so much more powerful than, than the, the language, hence dread being more powerful than... than I mean, if we're to... kind of going to refer to this kind of, um, you know, civilization's old tussle between Thanatos and Eros and <laughs> thinking about how that plays out um, online, um, you know, I, I almost don't know where to begin with that one because on the one hand, I very much am up for a, a project of destruction, right, and overturning and upending and I think there's a difference between um, uh, the language of dismantling right the language of a kind of um, radical potentially decolonial apocalyptic vision right which I'm very much down for love it and the the politics of uh, hatred mistrust um, and you know you, you were talking about you know Geert Wilders you're talking about the leave campaign I think we can also talk about Marine Le Pen we can also about uh, talk about Donald Trump um, one uh, the power of like virality in terms of using these new forms of media is out on their side at the moment right like in particular with Trump like a meme became president right but it's not a you know while he's certainly destroying people's life, lives these politics destroy people's lives it's not um, uh the kind of logic of overturning or, you know, the last becoming first that we see in Fanon that we might see in a vision of uh, redistributive justice. Um, it's, if anything, a more aggressive iteration of the politics of always. Um, and so, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, how do we make sense of this in terms of our cultural output? What kind of uh, emotional affect do we wish to create? I have no idea. <laughs> I have literally no idea. Maybe this is why I hate Tumblr so much. I'm just <laughs> outfoxed by um, the sheer number of emotions available to us. So we're about halfway through the show. You are listening to Hashtag Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM with Liv Winter, Jay Owens and Yuha Van Selfter as we talk shadow channels, politics, art, culture, propaganda. And we've just sort of been having um, a deeply emotive conversation. I, for one, feel moved. Um, and I kind of want to um, ask you, Liv, about the work that you've been doing around Where Is Anna Mendieta? Because we're talking about emotional affect, um, trying to communicate a structure of feeling and that being an intervention in itself, right? Where Is Anna Mendieta is not just a protest. It's not simply an interruption. It's, it's mourning. It's grief. Yes, yeah, so Anna Mendieta, for those that don't know, is a female artist from Cuba who was married to a man called Carl Andre. Um, Carl Andre is currently taught on the GCSE and A-level curriculum for art students. Um, 
So I first got into Anna's work and I discovered the story of Anna, which is that her husband, well, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it on the radio, um, she died and I, I believe it was her husband and many other people do. And there's been massive discourse about it. The court case was very um, in favour of him as a kind of privileged white man. Evidence went missing. Um, lots of things, lots of sh- shady things went down. Um, so I had written a poem about Anna because I wanted to talk about her in these um, academic spaces where she wasn't being mentioned and her abuser was. We know that he was an abuser, um, regardless of anything else. Um, and then eventually I got contacted when the Tate were opening their new building to say that Carl Andre's work was going to be shown there. Uh, I can't remember the title of the piece, but it's some bricks on the floor. And um, considering that she died by being pushed out of a window to her death, uh, I think the work holds really sinister connotations. Um, so I decided to organise a protest um, because myself as a survivor of domestic violence, um, who is also an artist, um, the case felt very emotively close to mine. Um, her work was used against her in court to say that she wasn't stable. And um, I think that happens a lot with female artists. We're told that any expression of intense emotion means that we can't possibly be able to be critical of it at the same time. We can, o- we can only feel or criticise, not do both. Um, so yeah, I organised this protest. Um, we did a big public protest on the opening night, which was really lovely. And lovely is probably the wrong word, but was a very impassioned morning. We wore black. We blocked the entrances, we demanded acknowledgement of the erasure of women and women of colour from the institution, from the artists that are supporting it by being there. We then did another protest a few days later where we covered his bricks with a big uh, sheet that said Carl Andre killed Anna Mendieta, but we also did a re-performance of one of Anna's works called Body Tracks. Um, Anna was a feminist artist, she re-performed other feminist artists' works, and she did this one piece called Body Tracks where she dipped her arms in blood and brought them down a wall. So me and um, other sisters and uh, women and non-binary activists, we stood in a circle around the work with red smeared upper arms to kind of be a memory of Anna and Anna's work. Um, In hindsight, we were very lucky because a good friend of ours who had nothing to do with the organising or the protest happened to be in the space and was able to explain to people what we were doing because I I thought it was going to be really clear, but actually no one knows the story of Anna really. It's not well spoken about. So lots of people just thought we were just smart, (laughs) which is like (laughs) a fair thing to think because it looked like it could have just been a performance piece. We were very lucky that someone was there to very loudly and proudly tell the story and pass on our narrative. But um, it was an important thing for me um, as a political artist to think about lines between activism and art and how they sometimes... Sometimes we get too stuck in one bubble and we think everyone understands what we're saying, but actually you need to be considerate in in what you're giving with with your information. Yeah, I think that's a lovely example of having to work on two levels at once. And then if we think about the sort of the media circulation and and trying to get the message out about the protest, again, you start to have to work, there's the visual of it, creating short video, short images, and and are those images interpretable in in themselves? Um, And, you know, it it becomes challenging. It's it's certainly, it's... um, People don't want their message to be simplified, you know, particularly on the left. I think this is why the left struggles, that we like complexity, we like nuance, we like it's all more complicated. That doesn't meme so well. Um, you know, that doesn't come across in, in the three seconds and right when people are scrolling. And, you know, there's two solutions to that, one of which is we create a whole new media which does somehow privilege uh, much more thought through approaches against everything new we know media about. media for a different politics. Yes. Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps. 
though dealing with the fact that we are still in the same old world and you know, living the rest of our lives in the same old media. So, so some challenges with that. Or we, and, and not all, we adapt to the forms and the affordances of the platforms we are trying to use in order to try to use these platforms effectively to get our word out there. And just to respond to some of your stuff you heard, that you talk about dread as being a very shareable emotion, but I think on the research on so particularly video and image and virality, negative emotions are very strong. Disgust, yuck, surprise, very strong. But there's also some interesting stuff. Awe is oh, extremely shareable. Yeah. Um, and the other part is, is twisting things, personal stories that where the left has wanted to talk about capital, um, you know, Marx and capital are generally not... Not, not terribly shareable, but if we can tell a story about a person that can look you in the eye and we can, if we can embody it and if we can make it live and, and, and bleed, that that starts to be a form of communication that does operate within our current sort of media structures. And whether we regard that as compromise or whether we regard that as um, effective tactics is a sort of an exercise for the reader, perhaps. But Can I ask you a question, though? Mm. Because... Um, this is exactly the, the right word to use, or um, China Mierville calls dread bad awe. Mm. So my question would be, what would be uh, good awe? Awe is an interesting one. I mean, it's sort of, it's going back to the ideas of the sublime, really. And there's a kind of a horror to awe, that a sense of yourself being found very, very sort of small, vulnerable, squishy little thing in the face of whether it's, you know, very big alpine mountains, if you are a uh, sort of romantic poet, or, you know, in, in the face of something sort of vast and ineffable um, and powerful, but, but slight, slightly terrifying as well as beautiful. Um, it's a hell of a diff- difficult emotion, you know, to conjure up. You've got to be, you know, or is not a not a commonplace in everyday life, which is why I think it produces this this sort of virality on that particular part. But exactly, or or is it or the feeling when perhaps there's nothing bad that happens? Dread is the sense of of all plus sort of impending is all plus horror perhaps. Might, yeah, might ecstasy come in there as well? So there's an, there's one that can kind of drives people as well, and but in both directions. I mean, mm. ecstasy goes goes all into all directions, always. Mm. I I think certainly it makes me think of, in a very literal sense, right, rave culture, the draw Mm. of the illicit, right? It's like, the point of rave culture isn't just the kind of triangulation of uh, chemicals, beats, and space. It's like the kind of ineffable draw of, like, the illicit, right? And, you know, you take that away, right? You can have... Uh, regulated spaces in which all these things happen, right? Because and because of uh, wealth, privilege, race, you're insulated from being treated as, you know, criminal or deviant. And it's less fun. There's less of a creation <laughs> of community because of it. You know, it's no longer resistance in the face of something. It's 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 also like art. That's reflected. Art in galleries yeah. feels like that as well. Um, when you put it inside a museum, the art dies. Yeah. And in, in a way, rave culture inside clubs feels like that as well. I had another question, though, because you're saying that we uh, we on the left uh, like complexity and we we might need to embrace something else. But I was thinking Stormzy um, mm. with number one album. How left is Stormzy or could we see Stormzy as a leftist artist? I mean, I think that rather or as than... Or as a shadow about, channel, almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I reckon rather than thinking about Stormzy in terms of um, 
to what extent does he cohere with our politics? Is how do we make our politics cohere with Stormzy, mm. right? Because um, Stormzy is the culture, yep. right? Mm-hmm. You know, Stormzy is, um, in terms of his uh, standing as an artist, also simply hyped, an absolute <laughs> um, lightning rod for culture. And he's, you know, kind of managed these wonderful pieces of tri- triangulation between, like, you know, um, you know... Uh, a grime which has revived itself with a particular emphasis on authenticity. Um, Stormzy is beloved of the kind of, you know, guardian critics and, you know, those who deem themselves the gatekeepers of high culture. And also, like, football away day lads, right? Like, you know, Stormzy's mm-hmm. kind of... And I, I think that, you know, maybe we can say his work is less uh challenging than uk drill maybe right which is kind of you know in the um ascendant and you know he um he's less of like a rapper's rapper than like dwe or something Mm -hmm. but um he has managed a form of populism right not just being popular but something potentially populist something which is creating community out of you know quite interesting uh sections of um you know demographic selections that we the left have really not been able to do i want to do a grime show every show i do i stop talking about grime (laughs) and you know maybe but like that kind of that's a lot like grime has long been a vehicle of like political discussion because of the nature of the people that make music like because of the nature of the people that are dealing with these language and the things they want to talk about like the language that forms around grime and i think it's interesting watching it have its resurgence because it's 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 now being acknowledged as this kind of political form, but it was a political form the first time around. Like these music, these these scenes that come up and up from the very bottom rung, they are always political because they are always formed by an underclass. And the most political. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally. And I yeah, I don't know. I find it sometimes a bit. I get nervous when people start to like academically criticize something that's really inherent in my life because I'm like, how long do I get to hold on to this before someone pulls a rug out from under me and says it's not mine anymore? Like it's like when we're doing Sisters Uncut stuff, we always listen to Nadia Rose and that's like a she's like a female incredible spitter and it's really like you know this great group of like women who like care and we were caring before and we'll care after but it's some moment you feel like someone's going to pull the rug out from you and say you can't have that anymore like to, we got like, that now. when is Stormzy going to get gentrified yeah I literally mean, I, that. I, I wonder maybe the way in which we're framing this in terms of all oh, the politics of Stormzy like why isn't it that we're also talking about the politics of big nasty mm. right why aren't we talking about like the politics of gigs like how is it um that Stormzy becomes um uh an embodiment of a certain kind of political articulation that we find acceptable right why aren't we talking about the politics of AJ Tracy why aren't we talking about the politics of uh Santander right like you know new generation and it's maybe like it's speaking to like again where we've identified something as counter-hegemonic that's actually reinscribing certain modes of power. Yep. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> well, all these breadcrumbs should uh, lead to that one grime show that you've yeah, been yeah. talking about mm-hmm. for weeks now, and it should happen, and it should be bigger than just the radio show as well. It should... I mean, this is what I like about all these different forms of uh, shadow channels that are happening throughout culture, is that they become so much more than that one medium or that one uh, interface that they that we used to recognise that thing with. So it's not just a TV show, or it's not just a, uh, a book, or it's not just a film or a work of mm-hmm. art. It's its own context and its own environment. 
and it, it mm. just kind of floats through through the kind of metabolized network of um, we'll, we'll join together and we'll shape something. And this is what I like about about the things you you do and the things you write about and and Novara and um, and I think this is a kind of a we're ready for a new kind of culture. It's not just a new kind of politics, but it's also a new kind of experiencing all these different layers of abstraction and emotion. So I mean, I th- I genuinely feel over the course of the past, like, you know, what, 45 minutes or however long it's been that we've been talking, um, I genuinely feel a sense of hope that really um, uh, contrasts with the kind of overwhelming, crushing sense of dread and political despair that, you know, the last 12 months has has engendered. So I guess the question that I want to throw out to the three of you to um, answer and either as a free-for-all or in turn, depending on how organised you feel, (laughs) um, is what does the future look and sound like in terms of um, a radical culture, be it a feminist culture, an anti-racist culture, a decolonial culture, a leftist culture, but what does the future look and sound like for you? What do you want to see more of? I think think that for the first time, well, I mean, I can't say I'm 24, but I think now there's an interesting thing that's happening where a lot of thinkers or creatives or whatever it is people do, people are starting to kind of realise that we have to be a bit more multidisciplined and like lots of people are now not focusing on the one thing that they're good at, but are now kind of striving to be interested and supportive in lots and lots of mediums of practice, whether that's like an art practice or a political practice or anything. I think lots of people for the first time, I work in a, I work in the Millwall football local pub and like for the first time there's also people there who have been coming there for years that I've always thought aren't very nice that want to go to protest now these like these people are starting to get engaged and become interested um in become interested through through desperation and like that's a valid interest in something to feel like this is this is the this is the light bulb moment that everyone's been waiting to have like I hope that lots of people who have always been too shook or too unempowered to get involved are now feeling like now's the time where they should make that zine they should apply for that thing they want to do they should take to the streets they should bring their kids and their mothers along and like it's time to get stuff buzzing (laughs) and also from the other end the media is hackable and increasingly Mm. so that if Putin can hack the Grammys, then <laughs> well. and you know that with numerous different forces. Firstly, that aided by you know the power of circulation that we've been talking about, good thinkers, good writers, good video makers, you know, people who can put things powerfully, are building audiences of their own on these particular channels. That's getting the attention of traditional media, who you know running scared, falling circulation numbers, so on and so forth. Recognise that they are having to adapt and recognising that there is a sort of vitality to digital culture and digital life which they need to leverage. Is it somewhat exploitative? Of course, but it's also giving people the platform to get ideas out there. So. The media is slowly, but it is dismantling some of the old hierarchies of only 50-something white guys getting to write about politics. You know, Teen Vogue is is a thriving media form led, edited by a black woman. And, you know, it's that sort of side allows what had been smaller narratives to circulate. And it allows them to, you know, I, I just want to see things grow. I want to, I want all underground ideas to become mainstream and get out to the kid in you know, Dorset or in Nebraska or something like that. I don't want them to stay in small bubbles where other people can't hear about them. And the more they can travel, the better on that particular side. You know, meanwhile, we see not, not just with um, 
you know, there's the access to traditional media on the one hand, but then secondly, the democratization of being able to create your own media. You know, hello, team Navara on the one hand. But, you know, you, you, you buy, you know, raise crowdfund a bit of money, and, you know, buy a certain quantity of Twitter, Facebook, ad, Instagram advertising, start reaching an audience and, you know, hustlers can really get, make something get out there. And so there's some, yeah, some dreadful forces aligned against it. But... It's not necessarily a monopolar world of power authority in particular. Um, and I think there's there's a lot of prospects for exciting and, and um, surprising things. I mean, I like the idea that what you've just delivered is a kind of um, 2017 Sermon on the Mount, like, hold tight the hustlers for they shall inherit the earth. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you have, the future, what does it look like? What does it sound like? Well, um, I'm just thinking of... Um the equivalent of Novara for the arts and, and even Boy Better Know or Non, yeah, not a crime, um, uh, Unmonastery, um, The Sprawl, all these communities, even, even their kind of transient temporary communities of different professionals or different disciplines coming together and working together. So it's kind of, it's communities or bands. I love what we do. We just imagine it as band practice. We just form a band and we improvise and we improvise a film or we improvise a game or we improvise uh, a master's degree. And and a lot of these things are kind of uh, educated guesses uh, in the form of a, an experiment, improvisation uh, that critiques and reflects and uh, feeds back into um, the wider community and environment around itself, a context and an environment that it created. And um, I see so many of these communities around us that are just performing all of this, performing this utopian trajectory, like Non. Non is really one of the best ones, Non Worldwide, with China Mobi and Nkisi and, and Gaika and all these people uh, around the world, trying to decolonize art infrastructures, bringing brown and black bodies into these white cubes. And it's it's working. And I mean, it's interesting you say Gaika, because when I was thinking, what's the future look like? What's the future sound like? Gaika. Um, and I've had this conversation with many, many friends, was that he could come, you know, it's so South London, right? Geica's work is so South London because of the particular ways in which South London brings together different cultures, different kinds of emotional affect. And there's something, I think, deeply unsettling in his work. It doesn't doesn't sound like anything I've heard before. It doesn't sound like anything that I think could have come from anywhere but South London. And I say this as a dyed-in-the-wall tribal North Londoner, I will <laughs> cut you um, if you try and uh, sass um, Palmer's Green. However, um, I think there's something really particular about this art form, but it can go anywhere, right? And so we're thinking about um, kind of coming back to circulation. Um, I think there's something wonderful about looking at these uh, these cultural forms which are so tied to space and to neighborhoods, but they're trans they're transnational because that's how music is distributed, right? It's like you know you bypass the label now, right? You bypass the major labels, right? You go through maybe Boy Better Know or you know you're a SoundCloud rapper, right? It used to be a very derogatory term, but now like if you don't make it on SoundCloud, then who are you? <laughs> but then again, that leads that lends itself to co-option. I mean, we spoke about this before we hit record, right? Drake, as an artist, I think is very interesting in terms of the way he speaks to a sense of deterritorialization, even, a sense of placelessness. Drake is everywhere and he is nowhere. And he kind of um, partners with, right, these labels, like partnered with Boy Better Know. Um, and at best, he's a beg. At worst, he's kind of a, vampire I don't know 
What do you think about Drake? Yeah, I think he's definitely a bit of a vampire. I think as well. Yes, yeah, so I was talking about him in relation to the weekend recently because I was feeling weird about really rating the weekend. I had a conversation with my friend about it, and we were saying how it's interesting because the weekend. He's telling you in his music, he's like, listen, I'm a bit of a waste man, but I'm going to tell you I'm a waste man and then we'll go into this knowing that I'm a waste man. Drake is constantly trying to tell you that he's not. He's doing waste man activities and then saying to you, but I'm a really nice guy and I'm really intelligent and I'm deep and I'll take you for dinner. And we know it's not the case. And I feel like that's what he's doing with these cultures. He's like, here I am. I'm a nice guy. I'm going to take you for dinner. I'm going to build you up. And BBK didn't need Drake. Like... You know, Drake's the one with the BBK tattoo, not the other yeah. way around. <laughs> like, I think we know who was helping who there. Although, Although Skepta, just Skepta yeah, the yeah, out. yeah, but yeah, he's just being a good friend. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, there's this one of the best sentences I've ever. Re- I mean, people talk about opening sentences of books. There's a, a, a closing sentence by the book "Can Jokes Bring Down Governments?" by Meta Haven, also one of the kind of the sources for the for Shadow Channel, is that uh, war is a continuation of politics by other memes. A play on on the famous one and I was just thinking actually art is a continuation of politics by other memes as well and uh, speaking of Geica and speaking of Non and speaking of Boy Better Know and speaking of uh, what we're all involved with it feels like it's just a, a politics that finds its medium and its meme and and with Geica it's music and then it becomes cinema and then it becomes uh, organizing a rave and then it becomes something else and same with Stormzy all of us kind of feel like we're, we're just trying to experiment with all different other silos, just kind of breaking through the silos of this is music, this is film, this is video games, this is journalism, this is um, the, uh, democracy, this is this is econ- economics. And all these things kind of liquefy and go into each other and, and, and it's almost like uh, Trinity in the Matrix. You stick in the Matrix and now you can uh, fly a helicopter and we can just have these tutorials injected into us and then all of a sudden we can we can master these different memes. And I kind of wonder if, like, um, you know, say Boy Better Know, say Geica, say Nadia Rose, say... Mickey um, Blanco. Yeah, Mickey Blanco, right? I mean, um, that these figures are doing more to relocate the epistemic centre of politics away from, like, you know, white heterosexual masculinity than... um, the Labour Party than the Labour Party ever <laughs> yeah, could, yeah, yeah. right? Or indeed, like an editor well placed at the Guardian, mm-hmm. right? You know that it's actually operating outside of these structures. That you know, yes, we're living in more polarized times than we ever have, at least in my lifetime. Um, but you know, it means that the um, there's an option that's neither assimilate nor die, right? And there's a kind of vitalism that comes through that. Um, so I'm aware that we've only got a few minutes left. So can I have some uh, thoughts which are maybe summative in structure or, um, you know, maybe even just a call to arms? We like that on Navarra as well. I think I want to argue for a kind of optimism that I'd expected perhaps this conversation here to go very much in the direction of, you know, when we're talking about platforms, when we're talking about media and when we're talking about capital, to note that, you know, whatever happens on Facebook profits Mark Zuckerberg and that um, there is no outside that everything we do is, is captured by the economic logic of these systems. And that is true. But I would ask, you know, and what? We need to keep acting and 
we can either focus on, on how trapped we are or we can keep saying, well, look at the agencies we are able to create. Look at the people who are able to build audiences, create new work, share new ideas and to really focus on the successes and focus what we can create in the gaps rather than to be bogged down in the sense, sense of being trapped. I, have, I see as much cause for optimism as not. But aren't things difficult? And? <laughs> um, I feel like, uh, oh, I wanted to say that if anyone's listening, um, I've been Googling loads of the words as we've been going. And I just bring that up because I think that um, I want anyone who's listening to feel empowered that they can be the person to do the thing. If you're seeing someone do the thing on social media, you're seeing someone do the thing, you're hearing about it and you wish that you were doing it too. Just, I think now's the moment to like make that track, put that thing out, contact that person that you like, go and do that gig. Like, it's a really it's a really important time to be maintaining creativity because creativity is radical and creativity is good outreach and should continue to thrive under difficult times i love all of that um radical imagination empathy solidarity hope hope's really really powerful and hope is such a boring word and such a powerful uh, human gesture and um, I get all my hope from uh, following Cakes the Kill on Instagram, Bambi on, on Snapchat, uh, Rebecca Solnit on Facebook, uh, Novara on Twitter and iTunes. Um, so yeah, uh, those are the, the, the terrible infrastructures that we have um, that benefit that 1% and all the others. However, we're we're building a momentum that hopefully goes beyond all of this at some point. We can imagine the end of um, capitalism, nation-state, patriarchy, um, Chelsea winning premiership. <laughs> That's the main form of hegemony that I would like to see uh, six feet under. Um, I guess if Spurs do ever win the league, that's when we know communism is in fact possible. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Jay. Thank you, Hart and Liv, for coming on the show. You've been wonderful guests. You've given me a lot to mull over. Um, I've been Ash Sarka. We've been Navara FM, as always, perhaps a little more breathless and hyperactive than usual, but certainly still Navara FM. Same time, same place next week. Bye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.